Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Congress is back from its Thanksgiving recess this week with not very much time to go before several different impending deadlines. We've talked a lot about the appropriations legislation that still needs to get done before the end of 2024, but the deadlines for some key authorization bills are creeping up even faster. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. He joins us now with what's ahead on the Hill this week. And Lauren, I guess uh, Congress is nominally back in session this week, but not a lot of indication that we're going to see a lot of progress on the floor as we're really facing kind of three different deadlines near the end of the year, right? That's right. There's obviously the end of the year where some key provisions expire and that always drives action. And then there's the two key deadlines set up for next year by the stopgap bill that Congress passed right before Thanksgiving, January 19th and February 2nd, two deadlines that once they get back from the winter holidays are really going to force a lot of action and something that Congress is going to have to reckon with, even though it doesn't seem today to have a plan to get to that point. And so I, since I guess the first deadline, the end of the calendar year, those authorization bills that you mentioned, including the, the NDAA, reasonable to expect that that's where we'll probably see most of the focus between now and the end of December? That's right. The two big authorizations they'll have to deal with, one is the NDAA or Defense Authorization Act. That one they want to do by the end of the year because some of the authorities in there expire. They want to take care of issues like troop pay and um, give those important authorities for people to buy things going into the next year, even if they're waiting for the funding to actually come from the appropriations bill. The other one is the Federal Aviation Administration that's operating under an extension of its authorization in addition to the CR. That currently expires December 31st, and it wasn't extended as part of that deal, I think, to keep pressure really on the committees that need to negotiate that in the House and the Senate to make progress there. It feels like NDAA is much further along. Both chambers passed a bill. They have a similar top line, but they have some details to work out. And I think at this point, leadership is probably the key factor in figuring out how that bill is going to advance. And and I think we don't even quite know how that reconciliation process would come together, right? I think in past years, there's been sort of an informal conference committee um, and, and there really wasn't a conference committee at all. Have, have we seen any indication of how those two bills are going to get reconciled? Because I don't think the Senate has even named conferees. They did name conferees right before they left. That was ah. kind of the, the chaser to passing the CR was to name their conferees and send that into those formal talks. Uh, the one luxury there is usually it's just the Senate Armed Services Committee that does the negotiating on behalf of the Senate, they were named. But um, what they had said right before they left is a lot of the, the big things that they could resolve as authorizers they took care of, but some of the questions around policy writers and key things that leadership needed to weigh in on, those are the sorts of things I think we'll have to see reconciled in the next couple of weeks to get a final product that the House and the Senate can then take a vote on. And then looking ahead to those next appropriations deadlines when the CR, the laddered CR starts expiring, as far as I can tell, we've not seen a lot of indication that things are getting any easier on the appropriations front, no matter how long they delay this. That's, I think, pretty fair, because if you look at how the House and the Senate have approached this project, the House has made a lot of progress. They've passed some bills. They've even gotten bills on the floor and then had to pull them back even if they didn't have the votes. But they'd say, look, we've had a lot of progress. We've had a lot of debate. But there's a sizable gap between the House and Senate approaches, like $100 billion, which is a significant amount of money. And then there's the riders that the House Republicans have put into the bill with bills, which has actually caused some of the issues with the, the final pieces of legislation where the mix of 
cuts and policy changes was enough that they couldn't get them across the line in the House even. So negotiating between those more partisan party line House bills and the more bipartisan bills in the Senate, that's going to be difficult. Um, the Senate has talked about doing another package of maybe four bills that would make progress, get four more bills with a chance for lawmakers to make amendments and debate what's in there. We'll see if they can get to that either this year or early next year. But getting to that final version of bills, some package of them that can get across the line into the president's desk still feels like a tall order with a lot of questions unresolved. And then looking beyond authorizations and appropriations, I, I think you're watching for the Senate to make some progress on nominees. What are you looking for there this this coming week and weeks? That's right. Um, Majority Leader Charles Schumer, before they let set up a couple of votes this week on some judges, which that's been part of the effort there is to, to move some judges forward, some of the remaining nominees that are there for different positions across the administration. So I would expect the Senate to chip away at that as they've done you know, throughout the year. One question still hanging over a lot of this are the military promotions that have been held up by Senator, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. There was a Senate Rules Committee vote to potentially change the rules on those to allow them to to move in big packages rather than one by one. We'll see if that battle is rejoined here. That was another thing that right before they left town, Republicans, even if they weren't supportive immediately of the rules change, were trying to put pressure to move those nominations along. So that will be another busy part of the Senate's agenda for the rest of the year. And even if we don't see much progress on the floor, there are going to be some committee hearings where we'll see at least possibly some fireworks, including a uh, t- federal telework hearing coming up later this week, right? That's right. That's been a lingering issue for House Republicans who want to see more federal workers back in office buildings downtown and around the country. They are joined in that. I mean, the administration, President Biden has said he wants to get more people back to their desks in offices. So this will be a chance for James Comer, the oversight chairman and others on that committee to make the case. I think there's a handful of agencies we're coming up, maybe Social Security Administration, USAID and others. Um, This isn't the first time they've been on this subject. I don't think it's the last. Um, That is language that maybe we could see something around in the spending packages as well. Um, Be interesting to see how they approach that in either bills for the rest of this year next year but that question is far from resolved all right lauren duggan is deputy news director at bloomberg government thanks as always lauren thank you leadership today especially within the federal workforce is being tested more than ever before as the Cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency's chief people officer elizabeth comestetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.